I trust you had a good Memorial Day this last Monday. Seems like a long time ago, but that was this week. And wanted to start with a question just about Memorial Day. What are some of the symbols of Memorial Day that, that have a lot of meaning and bring us back to why we're celebrating Memorial Day? What were some of the things you saw that made you think about Memorial Day? The flag. Okay, what does the flag, what did the flag make you think of? Freedom, okay, that, that people have sacrificed for our freedom. And, and so seeing red, white, and blue or the flag is a symbol, it's a sign that means so much more than just some piece of fabric waving in the wind, right? What else? The cross, the grave markers, the cross, what military. So those remind us of the sacrifice that allows us to even be here this morning that allows us to be sitting here worshiping, singing songs to our Lord, having our Bibles out without fear of a a, a bunch of soldiers coming in and taking us away. What else? National Anthem. National Anthem. Especially if you watch some baseball, you got to see that at the beginning. Um, National Anthem reminds us again of the country that God has, has graciously placed us in and the freedoms that we have. For me, I saw a number of flags half-mast. And that was an especially poignant moment for me as I, I, I had thought about the flag and freedom, but the half-mast reminded me of the sacrifice and the lives that were lost. And so, so many parts of Memorial Day remind us and help us remember much more than just, oh, I, I remember the facts, but help us to remember deep within ourselves and appreciate the, the sacrifice and the freedom that we have been given. Now, it's real easy on Memorial Day and other holidays like that just to sort of go on our way, right? Because sometimes the holiday is all about barbecue, baseball, and, and softball practice was really nice, uh, really cool. And, and we can get so into the holiday and, and so into the routine that we forget the meaning. This morning, as we look at the second ordinance of, of what Christ instructed for His church to follow We want to use Memorial Day as a backdrop because last week we talked about baptism. And baptism is a one-time initiation into the body of Christ. It's a symbol of that initiation of our salvation. And so we we obey with baptism by a one-time baptism. We saw several baptized last week and several of you obeying God, just getting up and saying, I don't care what clothes I'm wearing, I'm going to follow Christ in baptism. This week we come to communion. And whereas baptism is a one-time ordinance, communion is an ongoing ordinance to remind us of ongoing life in Christ, to remind us of our need for Christ. And so we celebrate communion every month here at Village. But it's so easy with something that you celebrate routinely for it to become routine. And so this morning we want to stop and say, okay, what did Christ mean when He said, do this in remembrance of Me? Why do we do this? Is it just that once a month we'd like a service to go a little longer and we need to fill some time with something? No. So like, please don't go longer. (laughs) No, this table and what we do has such incredible meaning that we need to take some time and go back and make sure we don't miss it. And make sure this table does not become routine. This morning, that's the ordinance we want to talk about. Let's bow our heads and, and open in prayer. Lord God, our Father, as we come to Your table, as we come to a symbol, a sign of what You have done for us, Lord, may this morning 
be a, a vital reminder of what you want us to remember. Uh, a checkup to make sure that we are honoring you and coming to you in the way that you have asked your church to do. Lord, you want your church to celebrate communion. Lord, we as your people want to celebrate it the way you want us to. So Lord, bless your word this morning. I pray that you would use your word to convict us, to challenge us, to point us to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we want to, to talk about the Lord's Supper. And turn with me to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 And our primary text this morning will be out of 1 Corinthians 11 as we explore communion, as we explore the Lord's Supper and what it means and, and how we're to remember it. But we'll also pull in a number of other scriptures. Now, when we think of the Lord's Supper, there are a number of names that we use for it, right? You've already heard us talk about communion this morning. And communion comes from the idea of participating in the, the sacrifice of Christ with Christ, participating in salvation and participating together. The Lord's Supper is right out of the 1 Corinthians 11 passage, and it's the, the name that Paul used. Sometimes we see the term breaking of bread for communion. And in fact, in Acts 20, as um, the author of Acts is talking about the early church, he says, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, and we see the early church on the first day of the week coming together for services, but also coming together to break bread. And that's a name for communion. It also was a name for a larger meal. And what they would do is they would come together and they'd have a, a, a feast together. Sometimes this was called a love feast or an agape feast where they communed together and then they would end with the Lord's Supper and remembering what Christ had done. Sort of like coming together on Sunday and having a potluck every week. Some of you that do set up for potlucks are like, oh, don't go there. <laughs> that's, that's not what you're suggesting. But they would come together, they'd eat together every week. And if you remember two weeks ago when we were tra- talking about the church at Laodicea, the aspect of eating together meant to commune or to fellowship together. In fact, if you were eating with someone, they were under your protection, they were under your fellowship, your friendship, even if they were your bitter enemy. At that time, as you ate together, it crossed all of that, it covered all of that, and they, they ate together. So the early church would eat a full meal together, and we'll talk about that in 1 Corinthians. And then at the end, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper together at each of their meetings. And so one of the names you'll see is the breaking of bread throughout Scripture. We see that in Acts 2. We see that in Acts 20. Sometimes you hear the, the Lord's Supper referred to as the Eucharist, which is the Greek word for thanksgiving. And that we don't find in the New Testament. We see it early on in the early church. Within a hundred years of the New Testament, we see the Eucharist being used to describe the Lord's Supper. And today, that's primarily the word that's used by the Catholic Church as the, and in their understanding and how they observe the Lord's Supper. But the question we want to start with is, why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Why do we take the time and do this? And the answer is, is short and simple, because Jesus commanded us to. Jesus commanded us to. But we want to dig into that a little bit more. Okay, why did Jesus command it? So let's look at 1 Corinthians 11, 23-26. And we're going to jump right into the middle of the text. As we go through some of the, the different aspects of communion, we'll jump back and look at the context. But starting at verse 23, Paul writes to the church at Corinth who was struggling with what communion was and how they practiced communion. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the do this in remembrance of me is an imperative, it's a command, and it's an ongoing command saying, this is what I am instructing you to practice. Verse 25, In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We see Paul here referring back to an incident that happened on Thursday night right before Christ was crucified. And the the disciples were celebrating Passover with Christ and they were in the upper room celebrating together. And Jesus gives these instructions as He redefines the Passover meal and redefines it to be an ordinance for His church, a remembrance for His church. And so to understand this, we really need to go back to understanding the Passover a little bit. So in, in four or five minutes, we'll give a little historical sketch of what was happening here and what the Passover was about. Turn, keep your thumb in or keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 11 and turn over to Exodus 12, 7 to 14. Exodus 12. See, so the Passover for the Jews was one of, one of three feasts that were key feasts throughout their, the year. And this was the one that commemorated the defining moment in the history of Israel. The moment when God delivered them from slavery in Egypt and started them on their way to the Promised Land. And so the Passover was something that was full of meaning that every Jew commemorated and practiced. And we see the story of that in Exodus chapter 12, starting at verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And this is the first Passover. And this comes back to a time when, when God is delivering Israel out of Egypt. And we come to the tenth plague. And, and before this, there's nine plagues where God is showing His dominance over the various gods of Egypt. And Pharaoh keeps saying, no, I will not let Israel go. And so we come to the culmination of that story and the final plague. And God says, you will let My people go. And He does that through the, the tenth plague of the death of the firstborn. And the angel of, of death is going to go through the land And the firstborn of every house is going to be killed. And that will be the the testimony of God's power over Egypt. But to the Israelites, God says, here's what I want you to do. That night, you need to be ready to leave, first of all. That's why the unleavened bread and having your belt on. You need to be ready to leave because my hand is going to deliver you. 
And I want you to sacrifice a Passover lamb and take the blood and put it on the doorpost, the two sides, and one on the the lintel, the, the post above. And wherever my angel sees that blood, he will not enter and will not kill the firstborn. But to all else, judgment will fall. Judgment will come. And at that moment, we, we see God's hand in judgment on those that are in sin and in blessing on those that obey Him. And we know that the story went that the, the Israelites did that and the angel of the Lord went through the land and, and the firstborn of all of Egypt was killed and there was a wailing in the land and, and Pharaoh's own son was killed and he finally brought the people in and brought Moses in and said, Go! Just go! I've had enough! And God's deliverance was final. And the Egyptians, they were done with it too. And they're giving the Israelites things and saying, just leave. And at that moment, God's hand of of deliverance was clearly seen in the life of Israel. And so from then on, every year, the Israelites would celebrate Passover. And they they would have a Passover lamb. And they would have unleavened bread and bitter herbs and things that deliberately reminded them, our God delivers. Our God is sovereign and reminded them to serve God. And what a picture of of the time that Christ chose to institute the Lord's Supper. Because whereas the Passover was God's deliverance out of Egypt and to the the Israelites it was a promise of a a future land, a promise of future deliverance. And so as they celebrated it, it was always this idea of look what God has done Look what God's going to do. And so Christ chose that moment to say, just as I delivered you out of Egypt, and we can look forward to a future deliverance, today I am delivering you from sin and giving you a hope of eternity with me. And the Israelites would have understood that significance, or the the, the disciples rather would have understood that significance in amazing ways. Because they, were, they, they had been told the story of Egypt their entire lives and how God delivered them. And now Jesus is saying, now I am really going to deliver you. This is what you've been looking for. This is what the Passover said would be the future deliverance. And that is the feast that Christ chose to use as a sign, as a symbol of what He was doing for His church. So Passover was a thankful remembrance of God's act of redemption and deliverance from Egypt through the Passover Lamb. It was a hope of greater deliverance to come. The Lord's Supper, likewise, is a thankful remembrance of God's act of redemption through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Through the new Passover Lamb, the ultimate Passover Lamb. Deliverance from the bondage of sin and a hope of being with Christ in eternity. And so that's the context that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of Me. This bread is My body. This cup is My blood. For us, it's a little harder to see that connection because we haven't been raised with celebrating Passover and understanding just how important the Exodus was to the identity of this nation. But we can understand how important Christ's sacrifice is to our identity as a church. Without it, we aren't. We aren't a church. We aren't a people of God. And so this 
is a sacred remembrance of what Christ has done. The next question in your notes is, well, what do the elements represent? I'm often asked, well, what does the bread represent? What does the the cup represent? And that's important for our remembering and our understanding of what is going on here. The bread we saw in verse 24 when Jesus said, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. The bread represents Christ's offering of His body, His very life on the cross as our sacrifice. The bread represents Christ's offering of His body, His life on the cross for our sacrifice. See, at the beginning of Passover, the head of the family would take the unleavened bread, which reminded them we've got to leave quickly, and he would break it, and it would, he would remind his family of the difficulty of the deliverance, of the difficulty of the journey. Sometimes the bread was called the bread of affliction. And he may say something like, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let all who are hungry come and eat. And so Christ is identifying Himself with the difficulties, the affliction that they went went through, and the affliction that He would go through for deliverance. And so when we think of the bread, it represents His life and His body. Bread often was symbolic of life in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is saying, I am voluntarily giving my life for you. I am voluntarily going to the cross and dying so you may be saved. The other night I was talking with my sons and we were talking about what it means to be a man and, and one of the things that I was talking about is, is that I would die for them. And I said, you know, as a, as a father, I would die for you, my sons. And it was, it was fascinating to watch my sons just grab onto that. They're like, what? You would actually do that? Like, yeah, I love you. And my role as, as dad, my role as protector of this home is I will give my life for you. And the conversation ended and they're like, wow, that's really cool. And, and I don't know that that's so cool, but um, they, they thought so. They're like, yeah, we're, we're going to be men someday and give our lives for our family. And a, a few days later, and actually about five times since, I, I'm joking around with the kids and, and you know, maybe Mark's running off. I'm like, oh, I'm just going to leave you. And he's like, no, dad, you wouldn't leave me. I'm like, what? How do you know that? He said, you said you'd die for me. You said you'd die for me, and that means something. And wow. He, he, he understood what we were talking about, about how to be a father, how to be a husband, how to be a man. But think about what Jesus is saying. Jesus, when He says, this is my body broken for you, He's saying, I will die for you. And the next day, He did. I will give my life for you. And so when we eat the bread, it's not just about some cracker and thinking, oh wow, unleavened bread's a little weird. No, it's about thinking that Christ voluntarily said, I love you enough and I care about you enough that I will die for you. And I did die for you. What an amazing symbol, a remembrance of what Christ did. He offered His life on the cross. As we eat the bread, we're not re-sacrificing Christ. Some traditions say that as you take communion, you're re-sacrificing His body and re-spilling His blood. We're not doing that. Christ's sacrifice was enough. Amen? It is infinite. It covers all sins. We do not need to sacrifice Christ again. But this becomes a symbol, a remembrance of understanding the significance of what He did. He loved us 
and gave His body for us. It's a realization of Jesus' giving of Himself, His body to be broken on the cross, His life offered so that we, through Him, might have life. It's also significant that, that bread, as I said, bread represents life, and Jesus broke it and gave it to them. And He's actually giving his, Himself to them and saying, I am with you. I am with you. And He promises that in the Great Commission. I am with you to the end of the age. And so as we take the bread, it's a reminder He cares so much He would die for us. And He promises to be with us. It's our real participation in His life, in His death. The cup that we celebrate and we use just small cups filled with grape juice. But the cup represents His blood that was spilt for us. The cup represents Christ's blood that was shed in my place for my sins, allowing me to be adopted into His family. In my place, for my sins, allowing me to be adopted in His family. Verse 25 in the 1 Corinthians 11 passage, in the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. And when we come back to the Passover meal, this was most likely, from the evidence in the text and what was said, this was most likely the third cup. And throughout the Passover meal, they would have four different cups and four different cups of blessings. And you find those in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. You don't need to turn there. But the four cups were, number one, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And they would drink and praise God for that. Number two, I will deliver you from slavery. They would drink that and praise God for that. Number three, I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm. And at that point, when they take the third cup, and it's the cup that says it's a promise of God's redemption, that's when Jesus said, this is my blood. In Matthew, we know that He said, for forgiveness of sins, to redeem you. And he's, he's declaring openly to them, I am the cup of redemption. I am what you've been waiting for. Full of imagery. And so the blood represents His forgiveness of sins. His redeeming us from a life of sin, from bondage to sin, paying the price to bring us into His kingdom as sons and daughters of the King. What an amazing testimony. The blood also represented a, a covenant to, to the, the Eastern people and to the Israelites. And so whenever there was a covenant between two people, especially between a, a supreme and, and an ordinary person, that covenant was sealed by blood. So, you know, I, I don't know what we use to do that. I really, really promise. Or we don't really have something like that. My kids say, oh, it's pinky swear. <laughs> and... But for them, sealing it with blood was the stamp that said, this is going to happen. And it was done by the Supreme, by the one with authority, and by the one with power to ensure that it would happen. And we go back to the Old Covenant in Exodus 24, and Moses, as after he had gotten the Ten Commandments and the instructions from God, he took the blood, threw it on the people, and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance to these words. 
And, and again, it's sort of weird for us. We're like, oh, they're throwing blood around, and this was after it was sacrificed. But this was an ordinary part of a covenant. And so when Jesus comes and he gives them the cup, he says, this is for forgiveness of sins. But do you remember what else he says? This is a new covenant of my blood. And when we drink this, this is God saying, I am telling you that this ensures the new covenant of grace and of salvation will happen. And it's a promise. It's a promise of forgiveness. It's a promise that He will keep His word and He is faithful. What a message to us who even though are saved, we still struggle with our old nature and our sin nature. And we still have to come back to God and ask for forgiveness. And we still mess up and we still blow it. And every time, every month when we take communion, it's a reminder that His blood paid the price for our sins and He's promised to forgive us. There is nothing you can do that is outside of the grace of God. There is nothing that you have done that you can't sit here this morning and come to God in repentance and say, God, I have sinned and I need you and I repent. And this promises He will forgive you. From the deepest, darkest sin you can think of to to the sins that we commit every day, I will forgive you. When we drink the juice, do not take that promise lightly. He is saying, I will forgive you and I guarantee it. What a gift. What a gift to celebrate. So we have the, the body. We have the blood. You know, there, there's a, a variety of traditions. Andrew last week had talked about the variety of baptism traditions. And so many people came from different traditions. And in communion, we have different traditions. And different churches practice different things. The Catholic Church views the elements as, as the very presence of God and that they are transformed when the priest prays over them. They are transformed into the actual body and into the actual blood of Christ. And I mention that not because that's what we believe, but I know there are many that come from a Catholic background and that is not what communion is about. Because they then believe they're sacrificing Christ again and we don't need to do that. When Christ says, this is my body, it's like saying, I am the true vine. I am the door. I am the bread of life. It's symbolic of saying, this helps you understand what is going on. And so this is not a means of grace. This is not somehow going to give you salvation. Because if it's the, the, as soon as you start to say this is the actual body and the actual blood of Christ... Now then, the, the next step in that evolution of theology was, this actually saves you. Taking these things, ingesting Christ is what you have to do to be saved. And we know from Scripture that it is absolutely not true. For by grace are you saved through faith. Not of yourselves, not anything you do. And so it's important to not confuse the table. There is nothing magic about the bread. There is nothing magic about the juice. It is a a sign, a remembrance of what Christ has did. Let's not lessen it by somehow making this the very thing Christ did. 
And so we want to understand that this is a way to remember and a sign. One of the other questions in your notes is how often should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. The early church, the evidence is that they celebrated it at least every week, possibly every day. So, every day this week, no. Uh, In Acts 2, when they talked about that they were coming together daily and breaking bread, that included communion. In Acts 20, when they talked about the first day of the week, that was a weekly celebration of communion. But we don't in Scripture have an exact command of this is how often you should celebrate it. So some churches celebrate it weekly, some churches monthly, some churches every quarter. The key is, in the words that Christ used in 1 Corinthians and in the the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as often as you do this, remember me. And so the key is it needs to be regular, it needs to be repetitive, enough so that we don't lose sight of the sacrifice of Christ and the meaning of that sacrifice. If we're doing this once a year, are we remembering it regularly? No. No, I, I struggled to remember last week. But we, we as at Village celebrate this once a month because it's a regular part of our pattern to say this is a way that we can remember Christ and what he has done. If you turn the page on your notes, you'll see really a section that, that focuses now our attention beyond the historical and beyond the, the um, technical meaning of the elements to how Christ wants us to respond to the elements. How does Christ want us to respond to communion and coming to communion together? What should we remember? What is the purpose of these things? See, remembrance is more than just an intellectual recognition of what happened. One author said, remembrance involves a realization and appropriation in the present of what has been done or what has been proved true in the past. And the idea is that remembering back remembers what happens, but then allows it to affect us to change us in the present. And so we want to look at five different symbols that we see in Scripture that we're asked to remember as we take communion together. The first is memorial. Memorial. To remember the past. To remember backwards. And and if you think backwards and forwards and around and and in and out, you'll, you'll sort of catch these five things. But this is remembering the past. And this is what we normally think of remembering, right? Recalling something that happened. Do we need reminders? Anyone here need reminders of things? Now, the challenge with reminders is you need to have them actually remind you. On, on Monday, I was in and I wrote down a list of things to do. And the top thing on my list, I wrote C-O-M-M. And Tuesday, I came to my list and said, I have no idea what that means. (laughs) Not an effective reminder. Finally, on Wednesday or Thursday, I wrote some options. Maybe I misspelled computer. And uh, Finally, on Thursday, it hit me. Oh, that's what it means. And it was something I had already done and checked off the list. It was great. But we struggle to remember. And so as we come to the, the table, we want to make sure we are remembering what God wants us to remember. And so we, it's a memorial, a remembrance of the past. It is a remembrance that Jesus' victory over sin and His accomplishment of salvation. We talked about what the bread meant. We talked about what the cup meant. His body freely given on the cross. His blood spilt in our place for forgiveness of sins. These 
are what we should be remembering as we come to the table. We need to clear our minds of where we're going to lunch. We need to clear our minds of what's going to be happening at work this week and the meetings we have and and the, the responsibilities coming up and focus on one thing, the thing. And so God gives us a, a symbol for that, an object lesson with the bread and the cup. And so we come and we realize the depth of His sacrifice. Because only as we understand the depth can we appreciate the cost. But one other aspect of remembering back and remembering what happened is we're to remember this as victory. This is a victory table. So many times we come to communion and and it's easy to get so caught up into the pain and the suffering and the agony of what Christ experienced that we forget that remembering back, we are remembering that a time when Jesus Christ crushed the head of Satan. This was the ultimate moment of spiritual warfare. That's the entire message of the Bible. And at this moment of time, God secured victory. And so as we come to Him, this isn't a time for, for... just somber, almost like being at a funeral. This is a time to celebrate. To celebrate. This is a victory lap. This is the home run trot. And, and not that we're not looking forward, and that'll be the next one, but this is a time to see God as the victor. Russell Moore wrote this. I love what he, he had to say. We chew tiny pieces of what seem to be styrofoam and cough back shot glasses of juice while scrunching up our faces and trying to feel sorry for Jesus. Jesus doesn't want us to feel sorry for Him. He gives us the supper as a victory party in advance, declaring that we are invited. God wins. He defeats Satan. He defeats the power of death that leads to eternal judgment. And that is worth remembering. So as we celebrate communion, it's a memorial, a remembering the past. Yes, we should remember the depth of His sacrifice, but we should remember the outcome of that as victory and celebrate with our Lord and Savior. And so questions to ask as we come to communion is what did Christ accomplish on the cross? What was the result? What could I accomplish on my own? Because that changes it from our perspective to His perspective. And so we saw that in the verses in 1 Corinthians 11 that we read when he's talking about remembering the bread and remembering the cup and do this in remembrance of me this is, and proclaiming Christ's death. This is a remembering back. But that's not all. That sometimes is the only thing we come to communion and do, and that's great, but that's not all according to Scripture of what God wants us to remember. The second aspect is an anticipation. Anticipation. Looking at the future. Just as in the Passover, part of their, their meal was looking forward to Christ's deliverance, looking forward to the promised land. The Lord's Supper is looking forward to the wedding feast when we will be in the very presence of Christ. And we will be eating with Him and fellowshipping with Him in perfect communion. This is a promise that that will happen that eternity with Christ will happen. If you look at 1 Corinthians 11.26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until what? Until He comes. 
It's a promise that He is coming. In Matthew, as, as Matthew records the words of Christ, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. As we take communion, it's an anticipation that we're going to spend eternity with Christ. It's looking forward to fellowship with Christ. This life, this life is not the end. If you're going through life thinking, is this all there is? No, it's not. Eternity with the bridegroom is what this is about. And so we see this as assurance that it will happen. Our future is secure, but also joy and a hope. Are we excited about Christ's return? When was the last time that you just sat and thought, Christ is coming back for me? I will be taken to eternal fellowship with Him where there are no tears, where there is no suffering, where there, is, there are no trials. And that's what we're looking forward to as we take communion, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. The third and fourth things, we come back to the broader context of the 1 Corinthians passage. And it's confession and community. I'll give you both of them. Confession Remembering inward, looking inward, remembering I'm using in terms of thinking about and reflecting on. Community, remembering those around. And as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we see really what is a, a stunning rebuke of the church at Corinth. Let's start at verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, and he's talking about assembling together, and, and specifically with the Lord's Supper, It is not for the better, but for the worse. Think about that. He's saying it would be better if you didn't get together. You're making things worse by coming together. How would we like it if we said that about church? Man, every time we get together on Sunday morning, it makes things worse. That's what Paul was saying about this church. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. And so he begins to get into the issue, there, there is not unity in the church at Corinth. There are divisions, there are things happening that are separating groups. He goes on in what probably is, is a little tongue-in-cheek here, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. And that, view that verse as sarcasm. A lot has been written about how do you take that because he's not encouraging factions. But it's probably the idea of, well... Okay, some of you think, well, we have to be different because we are different. And, and how will I be, be seen as superior unless those differences are pointed out? Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And that verse serves as a summary for what he's about to teach. It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. In fact, it's something I t- it, it, completely different It is your supper, not God's. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Now what Paul is describing here is is the, the agape feast, the main meal that happened before the Lord's Supper. And the rich would be able to get there first. Why would they be able to get there first? Think about it. They're rich. They don't have to work in the fields until it's dark. They don't have to work the 12, 15 hours a day. And so they'd come together first and they'd bring all their food and then the, the rest of the people, the, the little people they would call them, came together and, and they wouldn't have much because they didn't have much. 
And you have the church bringing together people from different classes in a culture where classes don't mix. And so they'd all come together and it looks as if from from the context here and later that then they would all get out their food at the same time, but that the, the rich would have so much more that they would just eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and be able to eat more and eat eat until they were drunk, until they were full. Well, perhaps the person sitting next to them didn't even have enough to make a, a real meal. Think about that. Think about what happens if you're the person with maybe just a half a slice of bread and you sit next to a brother in Christ who has a 10-course meal and finally complains about how full they are. Well, you're saying, I didn't even get enough to eat. That's the situation that is happening in the church right before they celebrate the Lord's Supper and how God has brought them all together as one church. And it's shameful. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, meaning they're just eating their own food. They're not sharing. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? And he's saying it would be better for you to, if you're going to need to eat that much, eat at home. In fact, if that's your attitude, stay at home. Because this is about the church. This is about the body of Christ. And if you can't understand the body of Christ, if you don't care about the body of Christ, don't celebrate with us and don't take communion. These are stern words from Christ to His church. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And then in verse 23, we see Paul's instruction that we've already read for what the bread means and and what the cup means and how, how this is proclaiming His death, looking back and looking forward. But then jump to verse 27. Key, key as we come to communion. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And I would hope that we've, you've heard that verse before, but let's break that down a little bit. In an unworthy manner means in a careless manner. In an irreverent manner. It means we're doing something that does not match the character of the intentions of this process. It's profaning the body and the blood. And so Paul here says, if you take this in an unworthy manner, if you're not thinking about the body of Christ, if you're not thinking about the sacrifice of Christ, then you are guilty of the cross. And the word guilty there is a a judicial word that says the same punishment will be applied to you. You are liable for it. You are responsible for it. And so Paul is writing to the church and says, if you are not examining yourselves, if you are coming without your heart being right with God and without your heart being right with each other, then you are liable. You have caused the death of Christ and you will be punished for that. Do we come to communion and take it that seriously? 
Or because we do it regularly, is this just a light and trite thing? Oh, Jesus died for me, praise God. And I'm not making light of that. But Christ wants so much more as we come to his table. Because it's his table and not mine. And so point number three there, what are we to remember? Confession. We're to remember inward. We're to look inward. To not take this trivially. He goes on to say in verse 28, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. I don't like these verses sometimes. But God is saying, take this seriously. It's a celebration, but it's a sacred celebration. You know, I think about even as we pass the elements and there's about 10 minutes of just music playing in downtime, what are we thinking of during that time? Are we talking with someone next to us? Are, we, you know, are, are any of the kids that we have with us goofing around? All of that is taking it irreverently. We're to come to God's table and treat this as a sacred celebration. And so when the elements are passing around, that's a time of reflection. That's a time to make sure we're right with God. That's a time of praising God for what He's done. Not deciding which Taco Bell we go to. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so we need to ask the question as we come to the table, am I right with God? Do I have any sin that is left unconfessed in my life? And in fact, I would encourage us to go further and say, is there any sin that I'm not aware of? God, reveal that to me. Because as we saw in Laodicea, we're blind to our own sin. And we do this regularly as a monthly checkup of our spiritual lives to say, I will be right with God. And if you're not right with God, if you're struggling with that, do not take communion. It's okay to pass it by. But the beauty of the cup is, is God has promised, I will forgive. I will forgive. And in that time before communion, every one of us can confess our sins and be right with God. This is a challenge to do so. But then number four, community, remembering those that are around Remember, we are eating together. We are eating together. As we see in this passage, there's a corporate nature to communion. Because communion is celebrating the work of Christ that makes us all adopted sons and daughters of the King. That makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. That makes us a church family. And so if we violate God's intentions of a church family, if we have issues with each other that are unresolved, then we have issues with God that are unresolved. And we should not take communion. And we incur judgment on ourselves if we do. We see that as we read on. For for anyone who eats and drinks, in verse 29, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that word, the body, is important there. And there's two major views. One says, well, that's the body in the bread. So if you're not taking this seriously, you drink judgment on yourself. The other view is that's the body of Christ, His church. And if we don't discern or if we don't act toward each other in a godly way, then we are violating the body of Christ. Which one is right? 
Both. Both. Because this is a symbol of His body and it's a symbol of His body. There's a corporate nature to communion. We see that throughout this entire passage. Verse 30, this is, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Paul's writing this entire section because there were divisions and they weren't right with each other. And, and the same message is to us. This is the Lord's Supper taken by His church and His people. And I challenge you this morning, if we come to the table and you have issues with someone else here, if you have, have bitterness towards someone else here, if you have an unforgiving spirit towards someone here, if you know there's an unresolved issue, do not take communion. It would be sin to take communion. And it's time, and it's a monthly reminder, it's a monthly checkup for God's church to make sure we are being God's church and loving each other and acting toward each other in a godly way. Because any of those things that persist stop the work of God. And we honor Christ's sacrifice, His forgiveness, by honoring it with each other. Think about it. If I'm holding grudges, if I'm holding on to things against someone else here, I am holding on to things against, uh, against someone that God died for and God shed His blood for. That is why this was so important in 1 Corinthians to address. Finally, number five, it's a proclamation, remembering outward. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And there's this aspect that as we appropriately celebrate communion, we are celebrating the Gospel. And we're proclaiming His death to the world until He comes. And the question we need to ask there every month when we take communion is, have I shared the Gospel this month? Have I proclaimed His death this month? It's not just in this, this table, it's in my life. And so this again becomes a monthly checkup to say, am I living for Christ as I intend? What an incredible symbol. I just want to end with, I, I think I put who, who should take communion. And it's appropriate to end with that because we have to understand the table before we do. This is a, a sign, this is an ordinance for a believer. And this is only for believers those that have given their life to Christ. Because if we take this and we, we haven't given our lives to Christ, then we, we aren't honoring the, the bread, the body that was given for us, the blood that was shed for us. So this is for believers. And if you have children, and, and I know we don't have children in the service today, but some of our other services we do, it is vital that our children do not partake of communion until they understand it. Until they can tell you what the bread is and what the, the juice is. And it's a great teaching tool to be able to do that, but don't be afraid to not have them take communion if they don't understand it. Use it as an opportunity. Dear Lord God, our Father, 
what an incredible sacrifice you have given us and an incredible sign of that sacrifice. Lord, I pray that we would take that and let it change us and impact us to our core. Lord, that we would remember what you have done and the victory you have secured, that we would look forward to life with you, that we would look inside and say, this is the time I need to be right with Christ, that we would look around and say, if I'm holding anything against someone in this body, I need to deal with that now. That we would look out and say, I need to be proclaiming the most incredible news anyone will ever hear. Lord, may that be how we come to your table, to communion, with reverent remembrance. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.